Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going? Uh, it's going very well. Uh, how is it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a rating review. Give us a thumbs up. Show us some love. Go to quickfs.net and sign up. Uh, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. Mm-hmm. It's a software that we use and love the most. We don't have any Bloombergs here at Focus Compounding Capital Management, but what we do have is a subscription to quickfs.net, and everybody else could use it as well by going to that website and just telling them that you came from Focus Compounding. It helps support everything that we do here on the podcast. So in today's episode, we are going to be doing a Q&A. It's been a little bit since we've done this. It's always great to get um, you know, uh, content from what is on all of our listeners' minds. Mm-hmm. So to be able to ask that in the future every now and then, I'll do a call for questions. Uh, you could follow me at Focused Compound on Twitter. And when you see that come through, uh, we will go over it on the podcast. So the first question uh, says, how do you see change unfolding in the banking industry with the current fintech wave? That's a very common question. Very common question. I have a good answer for it. Um, I don't know. We uh, are invested in a few banks. Uh, we've talked a little bit about like um, different kinds of banking, which ones we like more. I think that there are some difficulties for banks. Definitely. Um, well, maybe more consumer Uh, things and definitely with deposit stuff uh, that we've talked about but i think some of that's already happened for a long time anyway with really big banks having an advantage um that way in in terms of uh early on there are a few banks that are different that spend a lot on it but in terms of early on having uh things whether it's the website and the ease of use of different things that you can do online and all that help them it didn't pay off as much until covid probably Mm -hmm. um yeah uh, and we've talked a little bit about how I think probably traditional banks will be able to operate with less branches um, relative to the size of their deposits and things like that. Um, but there's lots of things that we don't, we aren't really like involved in. I'd say banks that do much in those areas that might be affected more. So like, for instance, we really don't do much. have historically not analyzed a lot of banks, invest in a lot of banks that do much in the way of um uh, higher risk consumer lending, uh, much of consumer lending at all, credit cards, um, lots of different things that could definitely have some impact that just would not be as big a factor for the banks we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the efficiency ratio is going to become very important for a lot of banks. And you, you've talked a lot about like railroads and with banking and stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the efficiencies on the cost side of the bank are going to become yeah. very important or are very important. And you see that with some banks. The best, I mean, if you look at any of the banks that we own, um, they're pretty efficient in the way that they run their business. Yeah, and we did a podcast where we talked about barriers to exit. I think in terms of exit, um, banks may have too much capital, but there's things they can do about that. I think they may take advantage of reducing some expenses that we said, like branch expenses and things like that Mm -hmm. over time, and that might help out. Um, They may have too much capital. um, you know, and have to deal with that. I mean, well, COVID was this great experiment, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's like, do but, we need that extra branch right, that's only a couple miles away from adjust to that so as from an investment perspective in the long run even if the market um that they're serving is not necessarily that big over time you know it, it changes in terms of how big it is or whatever uh, banks as compared to other sorts of businesses it um may be better are usually better able to adjust to the appropriate amount of investment in their own business versus the amount of capital that they should have that way. So returns on capital really drive your long-term returns on a stock, you know? Now, if you're looking for a bank for growth things and that growth doesn't come because of fintech things that they're talking about because of competition from that that takes away from it, then that's a problem. But it's not an area where you're just gonna have collapsing returns on, on equity and stuff in the long run because of additional competition. The reason you have that is interest rate stuff, like in terms of, um, uh, curves in terms of spreads and things and um banks that are not uh handling capital allocation right you know but otherwise they should be able to get returns on capital in in line over time same as like insurance things next question how do you decide which companies merit a deep dive in order to make an investment decision that is seeing that deep dives take the most amount of time how do you pre-screen out all the junkie stocks in order to focus on and isolate out the potential winners that's very (coughs) hard and I wish I had a better answer Luck. to it. Um, just kind of happens. The The reason is there's a lot. I find that some junky looking stocks turn out to be really good candidates. 
for a lot of research um, because those are the best things. Those are the things you want to find. In theory, you want to find something that doesn't yet show the numbers that attract value investors and belief in long-term compounding and all that, but now have that possibility to achieve that. You want to find the company that's high quality but doesn't look like it or didn't look like it until the last few years of their results. So you want to do the Buffett thing of finding the industry at the point where it's turning you know, value investors would think, oh, you're never going to buy a railroad. And then he buys a railroad. Like it would be the last industry they would think he would ever buy. And then he did. Um, so you want to find something like that. Uh, as a result, you can't just focus on the things that have the really high already returns and stuff. So you can't just like run the magic formula type screens or things like that. I do that. Look for things that are predictable, have lots of years of um, of earnings in their past, have, have long histories of somewhat good returns. Definitely the thing that I think people know historically that I did a lot of and do is looking for low amounts of um, variation and things like mm -hmm. margins and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest, first, the smaller companies we focus on all of that, I have to look into it in terms of segment stuff. So I have to yeah. look for, I can't use just the overall financial results. I want to look beyond that and see, oh, they have one really great product. They have one really great location, whatever it is. And it's obscured by the fact that they have this leftover stuff from before or whatever, and now they might be going in the direction I want them to. And then avoiding those companies that had a good business or whatever and are diversifying into things mm -hmm. that are a little more average. Yeah, I would say that from my experience and everything we do is kind of if there's a fundamental shift in the business, right, where you already mm -hmm. like the gross margins, you already like the return on invested capital and everything, but maybe there's just a fundamental shift where it could be even like a new CEO, it could be a new location, like you said, a new product. That's where I think in microcaps where you could get pretty uh, good returns. But again, it all starts at those first two, first three, you know, line items, right? The revenue, gross uh, mm -hmm. cogs and, and gross profits. And you have to make sure that the business actually makes sense from that perspective. Yeah, the, the big thing that makes it easier, I guess, is industries you researched before, the kind of soft signs of that, especially hints that this might be a really attractive product or service or something like you know a little bit about it and know that in some cases there's a way for this business model to be really good. Um, as opposed to industries you don't know anything about, which may be things I can't research, and industries where you know that this often doesn't have great economics. Um, so, you know, so like it's something that, you know, say it was uh, mixers for, you know, the non-alcoholic part of drinks um, f that would go into alcoholic drinks as being branded or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, based on things about beverage things you say before and whatever, that could be attractive. And so that helps you if it looks like there's that possibility. And so you don't throw that one away as quickly, even if the financial results look poor at first. Whereas there might be some things in other industries where I would throw it away quicker because I know other things like that and they just don't have that as great economics. So I might throw away some things that's focused on rural general store things or something because I've seen more of those and, and, and realized that I didn't like as much where the economics of that went or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. What are Jeff's thoughts, positive or negative, on companies that depreciate software development expenses? Um, I mean, I don't have strong feelings on that. It would matter if it's like, a, uh, it matters in two ways. One, is it a major factor in terms of the financial results that you're looking at? To me, no, because I really start balance sheet, cash flow statement, and then uh, income statement as being the least important thing. But is it giving indications about the uh, way management presents to investors and just in terms of the accounting and, and aggressiveness of the company and whatever and things like that? Uh, either way. So a lot of accounting things are that way. Does it seem aggressive or different or whatever? And in terms of how they're presenting to investors, and also does it seem like competent? And does it reflect in some ways poor operational things? This is more the way of like, how do you present to investors and how aggressive are you in different things? There are other um, items where, uh, like excessive inventory or something like that, uh, where it wouldn't be this is an accounting problem uh, in terms of they're being overly aggressive, but it would be a maybe this accounting thing I'm detecting indicate something about how they run the business. So I would put in that category. It's like a accounting sign that could be a symptom of stuff about the risk taking of management or the um, way they run the company and things like that and how they think about it. Sometimes you'd be surprised when you talk to people in a company that they may think about it more in terms of the reported earnings than you might think. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, um, they might not think about it the way that you would because if they, if they change their accounting treatment of it that way, or if they target EBITDA things or whatever, um, that may really be how management thinks about it. And so it can give you clues about that. Yeah. Um, somebody says I'm behind 
in the podcast, but I do think you guys mentioned Turner Point Brands before. Yes, we have. What do you think okay. of the stock today? I haven't looked at it in a while. Have <laughs> well, you? let's pull it up and look at it. So Turning Point Brands, so I remember when we talked about it, the, the big things that would have been big are... Uh, um, zigzag. Right, zigzag, which is rolling paper, stokers, which is value, uh, um, uh, you know, dip tobacco, mm -hmm. and um, especially rural areas and things like that. It would be, it sold in bigger uh, tubs for the same kind of prices, things that are smaller. Um, so non-cigarette tobacco products. And then they were also into vape things, which I don't know because I haven't looked at all the things about what's happened with that over time. Um, the stock had gone up a lot for a while. Is it back down since then? It's at a $800 million market cap. Let's see. I think okay. when we start looking at it, it was a couple hundred million, right? 300 maybe? 500 million-ish, yeah. It's gone up. Yeah. Um, I like, uh, from what I remember about it, I like the Stokers brand. Um, and like you ever tried it a lot. No, <laughs> I haven't uh, tried that tobacco product. Um, and a category, I should say, than specific to that. Zigzag. Product. You ever tried that? Uh, no, Got not it. rolling paper. Just clarify. Um, but not hating. But just zigzag is the issue, right? So zigzag is one of the issues. Mm -hmm. So very big. Um, but then what's changing in that industry over time and all of that, and how does that affect things? And a big reason I think why Zigzag was big. Um, was limits on distribution and advertising and stuff basically for uh, in how direct you could be about it uh, for things that were meant for use with marijuana, right? And ZigZag was able to avoid that issue um, by being a roll-your-own tobacco, a mm -hmm. roll-your-own cigarette, theoretically, yeah. uh, product, that legacy product. Wasn't that like how like other products are sold? Like yeah for for marijuana yeah they were sure. able to sell them because it was for tobacco sure but zigzag yeah. was legitimately the brand name in europe and the united states was legitimately for uh roll your own cigarettes long before mm -hmm. use of marijuana um so what i mean is it it would have been a the the brand would have been uh, having the best positioning in terms of uh it's like when we sometimes we talk about cigarette things it's the advantage of cigarette companies over time that they didn't have to advertise once the your leaders were, you know, if the Marlboro brand was one of the biggest that there was, once you're in that position, if you're one of the five, six, seven biggest brands, um, and there isn't allowed to be a lot of advertising, and then there's societal things that even whether it is allowed to be advertising, people wouldn't want to see it and all of that, that helps. At different times in the United States, certainly hard liquor things, condom things, stuff like that have benefited even when there haven't been laws against it have benefited from unwillingness to advertise next to certain stuff. Um, and uh, that helps. And it actually can make your brand uh, more dominant that way. Um, and I think that that would be an issue where there might be a potentially a lot more change and stuff as, as opposed to the Stoker's brand, which I think would be more the one that I would expect to have a better future, I guess. It just some of the things previously when we looked at it, uh, the... Um, Underlying numbers that I saw with it looked really good. Uh, just volume and sales numbers and things I thought were pretty strong in that way. But I feel really out of my depths in terms of the rolling paper stuff. I feel like a lot of people who are investing in things would know a lot more about that and have a better insight into where that might develop over time than I would. Mm -hmm. If you were to teach a class to people who had no knowledge of finance slash investing, what book would you have them read first? I would have them listen to every single Focus Compounding episode ever produced. Um, I like the Warren Buffett way. It's a very simple, easy book. And I think it was uh, written in an easy to read manner and really explains everything that I thought uh, was a great book. Yeah, I think that's probably possible. It's a very one. simple book. It, it depends on level. what kind of person you are, I guess. So like it matters if you knew what kind of person you were in the other aspects of your life and what you were interested in, it would help you pick out what book. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a really big fan of um, A Man for All Markets, which I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think that if someone was interested in math things, um, there isn't a lot of, there's, there isn't math in the book at all. But um, if they were interested in that sort of thing, I really do feel like someone who didn't know anything about finance stuff and read that and about Ed Thorpe's life and stuff could, and and then went with that from to things about Claude Shannon and all that could definitely get into finance things. Because yeah, everyone's familiar with casinos and gambling. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, so and the connection to that with when I've talked about like Fortune's formula and all those things and it, and it, um, 
a lot of that, I think you could go to someone who has that kind of background. Like Buff was talking to Munger who had law background and stuff. And there's just different people that it would make sense for. Uh, If you had a strong background in philosophy things, you're going to enjoy security analysis more than most people do because it is a more written in that kind of way that you would have something that would make sense to people who are worried about the logical uh, reasoning behind investment stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for general population, I definitely agree with the Warren Buffett uh, way one. Uh, for someone who's very self-directed and stuff. Peter Lynch. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say uh, the one really is uh, you, you can be a summer genius. Um, someone who just wants to like find these things themselves and believe that they can find those opportunities and invest in them. That's kind of the book that is most uh, inspiring that way for that sort of thing. And that you can just pick out those things and not worry at all about the market or anything. Now, it doesn't really teach you about finance things, but it could kind of teach you to be an investor that way. So. Mm-hmm. How do you guys look at company culture? Also, how useful is culture? I imagine GE would have had a good score with not, culture. Not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, it depends, right? Um, I like this guy's name, Rabbi Jacob. He's been a listener for a while. But okay. I'm saying it, it depends. I feel like in microcap land, I think uh, company culture of being very disciplined about costs is probably one of the most important things. So, right. And I think you're going to judge that differently than if you're looking at a you know trillion dollar company or like an Amazon, where at Amazon, for example, I think a company culture of innovation, taking mm-hmm. risks, right. um, failing, it's something that's very encouraged from just mm-hmm. reading about it. But <laughs> if you're, you know, dealing with a sub hundred million dollar market cap, I don't <laughs> know how much you want them to take crazy bold risks to fail. Right. I think it's important when talking about culture, not to be like good or bad culture, right? Was Wells Fargo culture good or bad? It grew a lot and it had a very sales oriented culture, which you should be aware of when you do that. Um, it's important when looking at things, when I was looking at, you know, BWX Technologies, well, it was then Babcock and Wilcox or something. All right, this engineering company that's in some high tech, uh, it's not high tech, actually, it's really old tech, but in some very, in a few elements that were very pure technology sorts of things in terms of looking for applications 10 years or more down the road in terms of commercialization with nuclear. Um, it's very important to understand why, how that culture is, how financially disciplined they are, um, how they think about things from that perspective of the engineering things, how they think about that in terms of uh, um, technology. Do they see themselves as a technology company? So with a company like that, what would you want to find? For me as an investor, I'd want to find a pretty high degree of financial orientation uh, in the upper areas of management. So in terms of how they were bidding for things and stuff, you'd want to compare them at the time. They would have been like awesome and stuff would have been competitors um, to them and how are they bidding and all that. How much are things overrunning and them losing a lot of money on different um, lawsuits and stuff of on projects. Um, and you would want them not to believe that they're primarily a technology company because of the risks of how long it takes to achieve those things. Now, a growth investor that's into that might like that. But at the time I was looking at it, we're talking about um, pursuing some of the projects that they would have been pursuing at the time would have been 10 to 15 years before they would be able to make any money on them. And then you might be a leader in it if you did. Um, but these are products that, that are viable from a technology perspective. The, it's not purely theoretical. You can make practical examples of this. Uh, but is it going to be a big enough addressable market? Are you going to make money off of it? Whatever. Um, same sorts of things when we talk about banking things or whatever. Are they big risk-taking things? What are they focused on? Um, each of them have their pluses and minuses. There's things about Berkshire and stuff that I'm sure are minuses in terms of the culture or whatever. Um, it's just really important to know kind of what their basic idea is of what they're trying to do and understand that. Um, there are some banks that we talked about that take that focus on certain areas and believe that they're capable in those areas. There are other ones that take very little uh, risk in terms of the loan side of things and don't think that that's really their job and try to stay fairly diversified and not focus on kind of finding out certain niches and things for themselves there. And either one can be uh, successful. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a a problem, you know? So I can't say that one is good and one is bad that way. Um, You know, Illinois National Bank that we talked about in the um, capital allocation one. Yeah. Isn't thinking about how do we add value on the loan side of things. Um, they're thinking about how do we minimize expenses and how do we get all of our money back? 
uh, is that the wrong culture? Like in the system that they built, it's the right culture. Yeah, for that business, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and a clear culture is usually best because then you maximize what you're doing in terms of your system. And over time, it, you come up with a collection of decisions that is an advantage over others. So we get the example about progressive. Geico does something pretty similar. But progressive thing is um, underwrite to a profit, 96 combined ratio is what they talk about, um, but grow as fast as you can. So grow as fast as you can while being profitable as an underwriter, not as just on the float. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a strategy for achieving scale, low expenses, all those sorts of things. And so it's something that you can think of that that's a plan that they have. Long-term history of Southwest, if you read it from the beginning and stuff, was lowest costs. It, you know, If there were things that they could do that didn't lower costs, they didn't really worry about it. That was their focus and that was what they were delivering. It's kind of like Munger's, you know, take a, something, uh, a simple idea and take it seriously. Right. Yeah. Like you look at like Costco, it, look at Walmart, look right. at all those companies. And is it the right thing to focus on? What I always worry about are companies that make the decisions just because it seems like others want them to, you know, and so they focus in on something that's like they're following others that do the same sort of thing, you know. Um, so like, um, you know, the, I guess the ones that we worry about are to say you have a very unhealthy restaurant thing and that's your big business uh-huh. um, and you're. You're, you're having a lot of success with that or whatever. And you there's a lot of societal pressure to be offering a bunch of um, salads and things, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you do that. That can be fine if you think that that makes sense. But sometimes it, that's a reflection of a, a culture that isn't very strong in terms of what you believe in that way. And so you're adopting certain practices from others. So what you always want to look for, I think, is like the idiosyncratic stuff that they have, you know? And... Um, with something like GE, I don't know. The GE one falls into, we don't really talk about it, but like the, the halo effect stuff and all yeah. that that we talk about. It, a lot of, the of it manager. Is, a lot of it is stuff that's very hard to measure. And then you have success. And so when you have success, it's not that they're not doing something that's right. It's very hard to break it apart and understand why it's right. And so sometimes you attribute things to stuff that they're doing, which isn't the reason for their success. I would say large amounts of like, you know, people talk about how Google's run and all those things. I don't know if that's very important to why they made a lot of money. Some of it is, some of it isn't. I'm not sure. Um, uh, you know that it's the best example of a company that way. You know, if you were going to study Danaher, that's a better example mm-hmm. of that. The way that it's run is how it made money. Sure. So if you wanted a way, I would follow the Danaher way, not the Google way. You know, um, just because in in terms of like how much did the culture how much when if everything they do is that really why they're making money or do they do all those things because they make money from a few decisions that they made that were successful and then you should look focus on those things that were successful so maybe you should say the early days of the company and not later things about it or whatever you know what conditions would need to be met for jeff to buy a company with a seemingly high pe ratio i'm curious if jeff has ever bought a high pe ratio stock and what it would take for him to do so growth um, profitable growth. I mean, yeah, I mean, the P, I mean, it depends. I mean, P ratio, sure. Like add context to it, right? Like focus on like the PEG, right? I guess, but I think that I, it would be hard for me to buy something with a high PE ratio. I think that's true. I don't know that I've bought things with a P, um, like if what's we, a high PE ratio to you? I don't think we've ever bought anything with a PE ratio in terms of record earnings. So, I mean, we have to define it that way. I might, I'm, I bought things that basically didn't earn money that year, but had for 30 years in a row before then. So the P ratio would be theoretically infinite or something. Yeah, they sure. might have earned a cent that year. So that's happened. But um, if we do it as price to like record their best ever earnings, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever paid more than 25. And in almost all cases, except for that case, I probably not paid more than like 15 mm-hmm. uh, around there. So there are some exceptions that people might know of if they follow us and stuff. But uh, those are one-time off exceptions and, and generally reflect that I thought the earning power was higher already. You know, mm-hmm. if I buy something... The normalized, yeah. Yeah, if I buy something at, that seems to be at 20 sometimes PE, then it means that I probably think that the earning power is really higher already than that. Buying something because the future you expect to be higher than now is hard for me generally because uh, I would say usually it has to do with market share gain right so a lot of times people are anticipating market share gain and i think that's hard to predict that's the best one is market share gain so occasionally we might buy something that way if it was a high p ratio the only case i could think of is there's some reason why i'm strongly believe they're going to gain market share over time right 
And market share gain over time can be uh, a possibility for how you could grow very fast. If the industry is growing very fast, I just don't see me buying into it. Like I think you're gonna pursue, you're gonna maintain your market share. You know, uh, you have a twenty percent market share. You're gonna keep it, but the industry is gonna go thirty percent a year. That's probably not the kind of thing I invest in. Mm-hmm. But if there's some reason why I think your competitor is weak and you're strong, you know, you think about like the. Buffett buying the uh, Washington Post or Buffalo Evening News or something, that's more the one where you would think that if I was going to buy something with a high P ratio, that would be it. Uh, strong competitive position versus the competition. Stronger competitive position than indicated by your market share. So future market share going to be higher than current market share. That would be the one I would think of. Will the new SEC rule on dark stocks impact your investing either negatively, existing portfolio, or positively opportunities? <laughs> In the new both, expert both market. Both probably. Both probably, yeah. Uh, to be fair, you know, like in terms of what it really applies to the rules, we have, I thought we'd do more, but we haven't, in companies that basically don't give out information. Yes. So right. from that perspective, it's not going to affect us. Affect us, right. So we tend to do, what we tend to, the, thing, the area that we've tended to be unusually focused on, and I didn't know this would be the area that we would be, is companies that do not file with the SEC or are not listed uh, either, or um, but actually have a lot of information available. So not filing with the SEC, but give out a lot of information, or filing with the SEC, give out lots of information, but not listed on a major exchange. That's tended to be more what it is. Mm-hmm. If you had asked me before, I would have guessed dark stocks would have been a bigger part of it with our fund and everything. It hasn't been. I would have guessed like smaller stocks, and some small stocks have been. But I, I probably would have guessed the media market share being smaller than it, market cap being smaller than it turned out to be. But what it has been is not filing with the SEC, but actually giving out plenty of information. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would always be the case. You know, it's easier to do value like quantitative investing in dark things, I guess, than quant than um, uh, qualitative type stuff. But yeah, we've tended for us now it would have little effect. But I would have thought it would have had more. It might create opportunities. It could with the, like you said, with the new max, uh, expert market thing. Yeah, we were talking on the way over here. We we're actually talking about this. I was like, oh, it'd be interesting to put together like a database of all these companies and just kind of track them, uh, you know, up until September to see just what happens. I'm sure you're going to get some pretty wild price movements. Yeah, but to, it might surprise you that we are somewhat less affected, I'd say, than a few other value managers we know. Mm-hmm. But that's a, probably more a diversification thing. We're just less diversified, and they're, it's not their biggest positions that are affected. Mm-hmm. So that might be part. Maybe that would be like, you know, how you've talked about with the net-net portfolio, mm-hmm. how you did that in the past where you're like, all right, I'm going to dedicate 20% well, or whatever, a yeah. single position to a 10 net-nets and make it like right. that. I wonder if that could be something well, interesting. Well, I will tell you this. I've looked at many companies that were going to leave an exchange and companies that would go some, you know, they weren't going to go dark permanently, but they were going to fail to file an SEC thing and you probably weren't going to hear for, the, for them for a while and then they were going to come back. Whenever that happens, you look at the message boards and things, people are like, I'll wait till that's done to get in. The stock ends up going yeah, up before yeah, that. Uh-huh. So, because the price Time is so attractive it. at the point where it's happening and you think, everyone thinks, oh no, I'll wait for that and it turns out not to happen. So we'll see, but sometimes you'd be surprised by that. Yeah, you always think that that would happen. Um, but this does pose a risk. So like, I don't know if people want to see uh, where they could find this and stuff that uh, the specific SEC rule. I think OTC Markets has some discussion mm-hmm. of it in different places. Um, and I'm sure the SEC does. It's way too technical for most people listening to this podcast, but it has some application to some stock things. The big risk, I guess, for it, like as a policy thing, is it does make the U.S. a little bit closer to some other countries where this is used to exploit uh, sort of going private without going private, trying to force investors out without actually buying all the shares at a fair price. And I've said before that in the U.S. for a few reasons. One is that I think the -the over-the-counter market is more active in the U.S., but also uh, active even in stocks that aren't giving out information. Doing Management's doing everything they can not to let information about the company come out. There's some of them still have somewhat active stocks. And uh, also legal things in the U.S. But in other countries, sometimes you have an easier chance to squeeze people out by threatening to take away all the liquidity and stuff. And this gives an out to some companies we don't comply and stuff, so you know that liquidity is going away. So you know, why don't you, you know, basically have the price go down, and then we can, you know, take the company private. Mm-hmm. I wanted to answer this question because yeah. I know you like this. Because here you guys are in Texas, and I'm tracking Tap. Heard their Topo Chico is doing really well in Texas. Any reviews on the product or any scuttlebutt you guys have done? Also, any comments on the company? Thanks. Um. So have you tried it? 
Topo Chico? The the alcohol, like the uh, is it ranch water? Ranch water, whatever. It goes yeah, by. I have. Yeah, okay. it's tequila, Topo Chico. Or, yeah, Topo Chico, tequila, and lime. I believe is all yes. it is. But yeah, yeah. I, but actually, the Topo Chico is actually owned by Coca Cola. But yeah, the alcohol. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I uh, do drink the bottled water. Um, it is not historically. It's you not like available. that staticky water. Uh, oh, you mean because it has the because it's um. I can't drink it by like because you drink it just like as if it's just like I water. That, yeah, I, I use I it like a mixer. <laughs> I yeah, can't drink no. it as a water. Yeah, yeah, I like highly uh, carbonated or whatever mineral water things. Um, yeah, that is true. I do like that uh, for all things anywhere in the world. Those sorts of things. Um, yeah, historically it wasn't in most of the country. It's one of those things that you know when I would go to New Jersey and stuff, it wasn't uh, didn't have distribution into there, so mm-hmm. you'd only see it in Texas and. Uh, parts of the southwest um any thoughts on core's beverage company no i mean just you know i mean i was talking to some people recently about some of this stuff it's a exciting area in terms of the product economics and stuff of this Mm -hmm. but it is a lot of competition right i think especially because of covid in terms of what they were seeing you're going to see even more competition for shelf space and stuff for some of these things from big companies than you would have if it wasn't for covid but you know, can you put in Sam so we can see that one? Because that's yeah. the one we mentioned before. And is it 50 times EBITDA or something maybe. crazy still? Uh, is it that? 32. Okay, yeah. that's not bad. Uh, <laughs> um, For that company. Yeah. It usually trades like um, that. Look at the gross margins, though. have declined over time. Yes. Like 55% the, in 2011 to 46%. Yeah, what are we up to in terms of... Um, Anyway, the um, so you know revenue growth and stuff's been strong, right? So last three years or whatever, uh, you know, what's that, fifteen to forty percent or something a year? Yeah. But like stock price performance has been even stronger on the back of uh, expectations for a lot of this stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm just talking to someone about that recently, and the the multiples are crazy on things that are you know whether it's um what do they call them ready to drink cocktails uh, you know the yeah things like that, seltzer yeah. things yeah yeah well i mean the actual cocktail things which they can sell at movie theaters and stuff in the u.s it's a little hard because um usually your alcohol uh content by, by volume is going to be too high to be sold in a lot of stores um which is where you would want to sell it you know um uh so you but it has certain things that you could, you know, you get, it would make it easier to have distribution in a bunch of places where people would be buying it. And mm-hmm. we've seen that with a lot of stuff spreading around. So, and it's interesting, and there's a lot of potential for it because obviously in the U.S. distribution is very, di- shelf space stuff is very different by state where some of this product is a lot, um, how do I put this? There's more and more product that people are using to drink heavily that's being sold in, uh, out and outlets that are very convenient for them because it's where they buy their other stuff and that is true in some states in the u.s it's not true in others and so there's a lot of potential to move from state to state over time and stuff with that and they're really big markets the u.s is a really big market so it's a very exciting area for companies and i just think there'll be a huge amount of competition because in a lot of the core brands of things soft drinks and stuff like that these companies the, uh beverage companies there's like no growth and so everything will be going after these things and multiples might be very high on them and all that. And we've talked a little bit about that. Mm. It's not that the multiples aren't justified or anything, but I think area you'll see a lot of competition area where you see acquisitions have really high prices. What's your view on Ver2 management and its capital allocation? Should they buy back stock instead of buying more dealerships? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think they're UK stock. I think they're going to pay the dividend I mean, this year is different, but I think they're going to pay the dividend whether I want them to pay the dividend or not. So if you were saying, should they buy dealerships and buy back stock instead of paying a lot in dividends? Personally, yeah, mm-hmm. I would rather that. I mean, if you have an underperforming dealership, an opportunity to buy an underperforming dealership at a nice price to book uh, for cash or at a price to book that's nice versus your own stock for stock, I think it adds value. I think there are scale advantages in the um, dealership uh, industry. I do think that. And I think that if you can sometimes have opportunities to have underperforming dealerships go to your group over time. So like, however you want to put that, I think consolidation is often beneficial to the consolidator if the price is right. Now, unfortunately, what usually happens, of course, is you pay for it or more than pay for it in terms of giving up that synergy. So it's not that I don't think there's synergy, there's synergy. It's just that you give up that entire synergy by sometimes you... If you stock it below price to book of one uh, and then you buy something at a price to book of one or whatever, um, 
but I, I do hope that they would buy back stock, sure. Mm. And when their stock was cheaper in the past, they would have been more attractive. You know, if if they have a choice between buying back their own stock at a certain price to book or buying a new dealership, uh, buying an existing dealership at the same price to book, I would prefer that they buy back their own stock, um, even though there are synergies, like I said, especially since they've achieved a certain scale already. Um, but, you know, if it was up to me, probably the thing I would be more okay with them is not paying out as large and consistent a dividend and being more opportunistic about stock buybacks and dealerships, but acquisitions. But that's not really so much a thing about Virtu. That's a thing about me. I would prefer most companies to be more opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most companies, your business is not so simple, so predictable that I want you to turn over most of your capital allocation to just a standard dividend. I would like you when your stock's cheap to buy back a lot of it. When you've got the deal of a lifetime at a good price to do it. So just you basically know. being proactive and yeah. rational about it. Right. I would prefer that. Yeah. So we're going to have to do another Q&A because there was a lot of questions okay. that came through. But um, I've seen this individual, Tristan, he's asked this, I think, in the last one. Okay. He said, can you discuss more about how do you look through earnings when managing a portfolio? It's something that we do think about. Yeah. So. I, when we put out something for the fund, I did a thing through look through earnings. And mm-hmm. actually part of that is uh, not so much to pump up the idea of the results will be good as also to remind people when results are likely to be bad. Um, if you're look through earnings that you have, so you, if you, you know, if you own a hundred thousand shares of some company that's earning $3, that's the same as making $300,000 yourself from it. You think about that in terms of the, um, and now for people, it's going to be very different in terms of taxes and all that, but put that aside uh, for what we're talking about here. That's going to give you an idea of what your earnings are and what you'll find when you put up a stock portfolio for a lot of people is the mix of your earnings is actually going to be different than the mix of your mark-to-market portfolio. So you're going to realize, oh, I actually get 25% of my earnings from banks or whatever, but I only have 15% of my portfolio's value in banks. Well, it's because the banks that I own have a lower PE and the tech things I have have a higher PE or energy. You know, there might be a year where energy is almost nothing in terms of your look-through earnings, uh, but it's a big part of your you know mark-to-market thing and maybe it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. So your earnings from it is really what drives it in the long run. Um, and then you can also think in terms of a look through earnings yield, which is like a P ratio that we're talking about. Um, these are important too, because when you think about it, this is a little confusing with indexes, but when you think about it, also the way they calculate index PEs is usually, I would say wrong, which is that or not. So a lot of times when you see things reported about what the average PE of something is, they've averaged the PEs. What they have not done is said, we've weighted it. So that the component that makes up 10% of it and yeah. has PE of this amount is given 10% of the weight. Like, when, like Amazon. Right. Yeah. But when you do look through earnings, you do do that. So what you're doing is you're calculating all of your actual earnings, like I said. So you literally write out and you should have a, you know, if you're trying to keep a simple stock portfolio, you should be able to do this yourself. Uh, get a calculator, write it out. I own a 10,000 shares of this company. They earn $2. That's the same as making $20,000 from this. And then you've got that column. And you add it all up together, and at the bottom you have your total amount, and now you can break it down to how what percentages you get from each thing. You can also think about it in terms of life planning and stuff from that perspective, not to get too excited, and to remind yourself this thing, and vice versa, when the market's cheap, you too get excited about it. But to remember that your investment in this thing, like this is the way Buffett would think about it, this thing's producing $20,000 of earnings. That's really what it is for your life if you keep this thing, okay? Um, the fact that interest rates change or whatever, and now it's going from being valued at $200,000 to $400,000. What I've always say about that is like, remind people, look, if you were making the same wage and interest rates dropped and you didn't get a raise, you wouldn't suddenly say, oh, the capitalized value of my wages is so much higher that I'm much wealthier now because my income is worth much more in Mm -hmm. present value, which it is. Um, So to be cautious about that, right? And what you really want is like for that look through number to look attractive, right? So if it is, uh, if you do that and get a look through earnings yield, which, you know, so like say your portfolio says it's valued at $200,000 and um, it says that it's, uh, that your, that your look through earnings on that is 10,000. Okay. That's okay. That's not great. That's probably going to underperform a bit right? If it says 20,000, then it's going to outperform probably. And if it says numbers in between that, then, you know, you're, you might do okay. So if you have a yield that says seven, eight percent, things like that. So you're talking about, you know, 13 times earnings and, and all that when you do your look through, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's important to do the look through part two, because a lot of people will think, oh, I generally buy stocks around 13 or whatever. Yeah. But 
maybe you sometimes buy stocks at much higher and they're a big part of your portfolio. And also maybe you keep stocks when they keep going up or those stocks you bought at 13, their earnings went down over time. You know, you want to watch that. Mm -hmm. If you keep having that, if you're always looking at your portfolio and your numbers always saying earnings yield of last year based on this year says I'm making seven or 8% of my money, you're going to do well, right? But if over time your portfolio does well and now it's saying it's a 4% yield, that's predicting not as great things I was in gonna, the future. I was going to yeah. tell, it, would you look at that differently being like, oh, wow, I guess a lot of my return has come from yes, you've pulled it price forward. movements. Yeah. You've pulled mm -hmm. it forward because the earnings have not gone as up as much. We mm -hmm. talk about that a lot. I always like the years. If the earnings go up more than the stock, that's nice because it makes you feel better about the future, feel more comfortable in what you own and all of that. Price going up faster than the earnings. It gets scary. It, you know, yeah. Yeah. Most people are excited by price going up faster than the earnings. And look, if it's very liquid and you could sell it and you're into trading, then maybe that works yeah, out. I'm you. like, well, they better deliver. <laughs> you know, but it, but just in the long run, if you're trying to build a portfolio, what are the earnings and how are they growing? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and it's, yeah. It's a good intellectual thing to do as well when you talk about life planning because everyone kind of bases their emotions by the P&L right. of the actual portfolio, the okay. percentage, what they're up or what they're compounding their wealth at. So I think it almost will keep them more even keeled where, you know, when times are great, it, you know, help you just keep that perspective. When times are bad, it can help you keep that perspective as well as long as the businesses are doing fine. Yeah, and logically, I mean, even if you're looking at stuff and you're like, oh, I'm going to retire and whatever, if the earnings that you're looking at are looking good compared to wages, then that gives you a lot more confidence and stuff. Uh, I mean, that sounds like common sense, right? But for a lot of people, I'm not sure that that calculation's ever been done. No, I get, I get more scared when the price is going up a lot faster right. than the earnings are. Right. That's when I get scared. So, you, you know, it's more like you think about it as wealth, like this is how much I have in wealth, you know? But it is important to think about, I actually own these businesses on a look-through basis mm -hmm. for the very long term. Now, a lot of people could argue you're not really going to own these businesses for that long. You're going to flip them. You're going to trade them and all that. But even if that's true, you would have to assume that somehow your skill in doing that is better or worse to add value, you know? Mm -hmm. When, honestly, for most people, the likelihood is you what their, va their, their earnings is going to be a very big factor in what the stock does in the long run if you hold on to it. And if you get out of it and get into other things, for a lot of people, not skilled trading of value stocks, but for a lot of people, it will not really add value. So, you know, this if this stock is going to go down 40, 50% over time, so is a lot of the other market and stuff. You're not generally going to be good at timing to get out of this and into something else, you know, to get more value that way. Though sometimes you might be able to. And this will help you see that, that something is a big part of your portfolio, but a small part of your earnings. And then to consider that. And the other thing that helps is figure out where your earnings actually come from, because you can kind of categorize it. And it does help you that way to be like, oh, I'm getting most of my earnings from technology, uh, you know, uh, food, banking, whatever. Mm -hmm. That when you sort of add it up together and you realize what a lot of it's coming from. But I think you'll be surprised that a lot of in the long run, if you own things for a while, um, that prediction of what your look through earnings look like and stuff is going to explain a lot of what your eventual value that you get. Uh, the wealth that you end up with is going to be from, um, you know, and it might surprise you that way. So like the, it'll be the mark to market stuff's going to be changing all the time around that, but it might give you a little bit better indication when you realize that you've bought a lot of earnings this year or whatever, you bought some big position something that was pretty cheap. You've bought a lot of earnings in some industry. And as long as that industry and that business do pretty well, eventually that's going to be a big part of your, mm -hmm. your, um, uh, portfolio on a mark to market basis but you don't know that yet but it'll show up in the, the look through mm -hmm. yeah. um we'll do two more uh questions portfolio okay. management question as a professional investor if your position size starts at 20 percent, at what point would you consider trimming a highly successful investment 40 percent of the portfolio 50 percent, never question mark or is it purely driven by the opportunity of other stocks are both needed question mark um I mean, it depends. Personally, for me as an individual, I would, you know, if I liked it and all that, I wouldn't trim, right? But when investing for other people, there's a few factors to keep in mind. Um, one, which I think is the much lesser factor, is year-to-year uh, -year results and things like that. People get worked up about that. But you should know, just to keep in mind for everyone, um, psychologically what can be difficult is if you have a stock that's a fairly large percentage of your portfolio, as it gets to be a bigger percentage of your portfolio, there's a greater likelihood 
it has a year of unusual performance that's strong, that makes it a bigger part of your portfolio, and that it has a chance of having an unusually poor performance in terms of the stock price, regardless of whether it has a poor performance in terms of the business. Right. So the way it gets to be very big is because it went up faster than the other stocks. It then can go down faster than the other stocks, and that's quite common. Right. And depending on when your calendar years or your quarters or your whatever you're measuring it by look like, you can mentally, you know, book a game and then book a loss. Mm-hmm. And that will trouble some people. So if you're writing a blog and saying, I'm up 50% this year, well, you now have a large part of that was a stock that's now kind of more expensive than it was at the beginning of last year. That's a very big part of your portfolio and might have a poor performance this year. To me, I don't think that matters. If over three, four or five years, it does better than being in something else. The fact that you were up a lot one year, then down a lot, then up a lot shouldn't really matter. It should be the same over time of what you own with the position. The fact that, you know, the volatility by year shouldn't matter. Um, the other factor though is uh, liquidity. And so we're invested in some things that would be less liquid. And so there has to always be a um, overall portfolio situation where liquidity is sufficient. But I think that should always be measured on the portfolio thing. This is a big one for me that uh, people say, like, is this position too illiquid? There's no such thing as too illiquid a position for someone. There shouldn't be. Uh, No matter what you do, uh, it, it should not matter that way. But there is definitely such thing as too illiquid a portfolio. But, you know, everyone can, you could afford to have a portfolio that's 95% cash, pure liquidity, and 5% the most illiquid thing in the world. Because if you need access to 95% of your portfolio today all the time, you know, that's, you shouldn't be investing. So, and it depends on the person. But even if you're getting into things where you want to have a high degree of illiquidity that you're investing in things, if you get positions that aren't highly liquid for you and they're getting to be 50% or whatever, not just one position, but added up together with other positions of liquidity, then you would have a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's true for everything. And, but it's true for banks, insurance companies, whatever. Um, You should always view it that way. Their liquidity needs are, are uh, an overall thing that you should be looking at and not a specific position. When someone says like, this is too illiquid, there shouldn't be something that's too illiquid for a bank and insure a endowment of an individual to own. Uh, most people own a house that at times, at a bad housing market, a house is very illiquid. Um, but it can be an appropriate part of something that you own. It just can't be something that you expect to have for cash. And so I think that that's more of the issue. But if you were saying, like, there's some stock that I love that was purely liquid, uh, like, you know, it maybe it was a big cap stock or whatever, um, and it got to be 50% of my portfolio, for me as an individual, that would not bother me. Um, as an investor, you would view it from like an opportunity people. thing. Yes. Also. So yes. if it's more attractive, if, the, yes. if, if it continues to be more attractive than other stocks, it would not bother me. Um, now, obviously as it goes up faster than other stocks, which is the only way it has to go up faster than other stocks to get to be a bigger part of your portfolio. So, uh, if you're not buying more, so it, it tends to be that it becomes less attractive, you know, but that's not always the case. Uh, the, sometimes it does happen that you happen to have a mix where you bought large positions in something that was much better than something else. And it, the thing that goes down could deserve to go down. The thing that goes up could deserve to go up and not become less attractive over time. So it does like use the look through earnings and all that to try to decide on it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't want to turn it back if you want, if, so for people listening to this, if you're worried about, I'd never want a stock to be 40 or 50% of my portfolio. Um, then don't start at 20, start at a smaller position for most people. I wouldn't, but other people give the opposite advice, but I would give the advice. Don't trim back because it's too big Mm -hmm. a part of your portfolio. So start smaller from the beginning, buy at a smaller position, but yeah, I don't think you want to make making sell decisions, um, or buy decisions for the most part based on diversification things. I mean, it is a factor sometimes when we're thinking about things that there, we, we would buy more, but we can't buy more because we were, it's too illiquid or it, we're not diversified enough. That can happen, but you want all your buy and sell decisions ideally to be, I'm selling this because I like something else better. I'm buying this because I like this better than everything else. You really want to take the other decisions out. Mm-hmm. So if it gets worrying you about that, like you see that happen and it worries you don't start at 20% position, start at 10 but that way, then you won't bump up against whatever ceiling in your mind there is about having to sell to diversify. And so you can keep the idea that selling is something you do because this is no longer as attractive as something else, which I think is better. Because um, I don't think that, like, I think it's hard to evaluate decisions you made about selling for, like, diversification purposes. A lot of people tell themselves, oh, I made a good decision. You know, but if Buffett had done that with Berkshire, with each of the individual constituents over the time, 
it would have been a really bad decision you know and each time you could tell yourself it was a justifiable decision it was necessary but actually like you know it would have been a mistake in terms of the stock but then coke it would have been a, a smart thing to sell it around the end of the 90s um but they would have been a smart thing on the fact that it was versus other options really expensive mm -hmm. and that's the way to think about selling yeah what is the most obscure security yourself or jeff have ever been involved with that'll be our last question for today the most obscure security ever been involved with um mine would be a probably a 20 million dollar market cap that trade five thousand dollars a day when we first started looking at it hmm. not anymore well people can find i wrote a, a letter to the board of bank insurance so that's somewhat obscure um i don't remember what the market cap and stuff was but the, the float was quite small and there were some days where it didn't trade anything um, I remember I had a open account with a broker at one time who was a broker that you call personally. So this was my personal money. And, uh, I called him and said something about the, you know, the ticker symbol. So I read the ticker symbol over to him, you know, and he said, uh, Oh, this can't be right. The description says had been engaged in the business. Of, and I said, Oh no, that's right. That's the one. Um, it was, so it was like an arbitrage thing. It was, mm -hmm. it had sold off its business and I bought it to be taken out by someone else expecting it. And it was, um, there might've been some ones in other countries and stuff that were that obscure. Um, in terms of securities, I guess technically it's not common stocks. So I was involved in some things that were, um, relative arbitrage type things, I guess. So that, that would probably be it. But, um, in terms of liquidity and stuff, you know, bank insurance was pretty close. Uh, I think I, I've said, you know, for the record, I definitely bought the majority of the volume over a period of months in that stock. I was the buyer of the majority of the volume. So, you know, when you buy most of the volume in a stock for a period of months, that tends to be an obscure stock. Mm -hmm. um, so that might have been it. But, you know, there, there were other ones that, you know, I did um, buy 99 shares of a stock when it's expected to go pri private, uh, you know, doing a uh, 100 for ones, mm -hmm. you know, um, to get under the 300 shareholder limit, which was Sarbanes-Oxley. That was a popular thing. So little, you know, arbitrage things like that, probably, yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, we'll do next week uh, another Q&A or next time we do do a Q&A, hopefully soon we will pull more questions uh, from this list. Thank you so much, everybody, for all the questions. There were a lot of them in there. Uh, be on the lookout for the next Q&As in the future at Focus Compound on Twitter is the best place to follow me. Uh, if you're watching on the screen, this is QuickFS right here. Obviously, if you're familiar with the work that we do, you know that we use it every single episode and every single day. So go to Focus Compound. So go to quickfs.net and sign up and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. I thank everybody so much for the support. Hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating review, and we will see you in the next podcast.